Hello everyone, I'm your host, Gary Kelly, Managing Director of gkmedia.ie and thank you for joining me for another episode of Gary Talks, a podcast series that delves to explore the world of business and marketing through discussion with various business leaders and entrepreneurs. I just made that up, but it does sound good. This week, I'm joined by Brian Lynch, a practicing solicitor, an author and founder of OxyGeneration. Brian founded OxyGeneration after discovering the effects that hyperbaric oxygenation had on him during his recovery from a horrific accident eight years ago. OxyGeneration is a private hyperbaric oxygenation therapy clinic based in Galway City. Brian has recently published a book on this topic titled Oxygenation is the Solution, Deaths from COVID-19 and Global Legal Insights for Medical Practice. Now, I should declare before we go any further that I am by no means a medical practitioner. So as always, when you are seeking any medical advice or help, please discuss symptoms and treatments with your doctor or general practitioner. In this episode of Gary Talks, we talk about Brian's parents. We talk about a horrific accident he suffered a few years ago, his recovery treatment through hyperbaric oxygenation, court cases which have changed medical treatments, using customers to help grow your business. And I think it's interesting to hear Brian talk about this treatment his business provides that he feels is making a remarkable change for people, especially those with long COVID. This is another episode of Gary Talks. Sit back, relax and enjoy. This is a GK Media podcast. Brian, thank you for joining us on Gary Talks and welcome to GK Media Studios. Well, Gary, it's great to hear at GK Media Studios. Thank, <laughs> thank you. you. <laughs> First of all, and I never thought this is the way I'd start a conversation, but I admire your mother. 40 years of age, a widow, 10 children. Remarkable challenge. Yeah, she was some woman, all right. And she was a mother right up to the very end. Uh, great wisdom. And we still celebrate her birthday. Oh, brilliant. Mm. Can you tell That's us about family. her? What sort of woman was she? Because you probably, I, I'm assuming you were, remember more time with her than you would have with your father. Yeah, well, my father was killed in a motor accident when I was four and a half. An asshole, Larry, jackknifed over top of the car and he died two days later. So she was left a widow, just 40, with 10 children. The youngest was two and a half and the oldest was 14. This is, you grew up in Galway, isn't you? grew up in Galway, yes. What sort of woman was she? She had a great sense of humour and loving, great ability. She became a great uh, businesswoman. She was probably a great businesswoman behind my father when they were together. My father was an entrepreneur. His family had a hotel in Cavan and he owned coal mines in Ireland, anthracite mines, uh, during the war years. And he and two others built the power station in Ballyshannon when he was 32 years old. And Siemens were going for the contract at the time, but they won it and they brought Siemens in as subcontractors. <laughs> And, w and what business then did your mother get involved in? Well, we converted our house to a bed and breakfast after about four years after his death, maybe five years. And she bought and sold houses and rented houses and so on. 
because I, I always find it interesting for people in business who grew up in a family where their parents were in business because I often think as a child you're sitting there at the kitchen table and you're hearing conversations and it's you know you're in the middle of it the thick of it you're hearing things you're learning it, it's the best schooling you can get I think when it comes to getting involved in business hearing it from people who are in it day in day out because they'll come to the table they'll say things that they may not say in the work environment that other yes. colleagues may hear well I remember as a youngster we were, we were ten, 10 children and there was always some visitors in the house friends or family or relations or so on and as a four year old or a five year old to get a sentence in at the conversation at the table was an achievement <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're delighted with yourself yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> but I mean, remarkable lady, because from looking at it from the outside, her children have gone on to do very well for themselves. You're a practicing solicitor. I think there's a doctor in the family. Yes, two, there's two doctors, two accountants, a nurse, one solicitor, and there was a variety of, of, yeah. of us, right? That's brilliant. And you've stayed in Galway. I'm the only one who's living in Galway now, full time. Wow. Yeah. What drew you to, to remain in Galway? Well, I worked for Ted Cook and Blake and Kenny as a, as an apprentice, and then I went away to Limerick and I worked in in the stool for a year and a half for Robert Pierce, who was considered the best solicitor in the country at the time, and I wanted to work for the best solicitor at the time. Uh, and then I came back to Blake and Kenny, where Michael Malloy is now, Robbie's brother. Yeah, but I want to set up my own practice. I decided I it wasn't necessary to set up my own practice. I just wanted to have a different type of practice. I wanted to it to be modernized. I wanted it to be computerized you know, efficient in filing and, you know, have have less lean. And I, I would have upset elderly people in that practice to, to, to make the make those changes. And there were lovely people. And I said, I'd, I'd do it on my own. Yeah. So what's it like being in business? I love it. It's, it's challenging. I've had an easy time in business, really. It's been easy for me. It's been interesting going through different challenging times. The COVID time has been tough going. It has been completely changed. You know what you're doing and I'm 67 years old now, and if I'd been more successful, I had a few deals that went wrong, so I have to kind of start again from the from the ashes. But not quite, but, you know, near enough to there. But do you find failures are great because we can learn so much from them, or do you just hate failure? No, I think that it's always a challenge. As I said, I dedicated this book I've written to what my mother was. She, she said she wasn't a victim, she was a warrior. Oh. So that's what I am. I, I take on that uh, idea, you know. I think you certainly are a warrior because I, I was reading your book, Oxygenation is the Solution. And I know there's a longer title to it, but if, if people can find it by searching out that opening title to it. And I say you're a warrior because I couldn't believe at the start of the book, hearing about the horrific accident that you endured and the journey of recovery that was involved. and what that led to in, we'll say, bringing oxygenation to Galway. Oh, certainly the, the accident was life-changing, but at the time I was on the ground, I, I didn't realise I was so badly injured and I didn't realise that I was so close to death because my the pipe that takes my urine... Yeah, tell people what happened, yeah. Yeah, the, I, was, I was riding a mare in, in England in Warwickshire and it was about three minutes before the end of the, of the fox hunting and my mare's leg went into a, a hole in the ground and I was so close to a hedge I couldn't fall off the, the mare properly. So I went down with her and I don't know was it when she was getting up but I can remember her four legs in the air 
crushing my body and I crushed my pelvis, a lot of internal injuries. And I can remember lying there uh, pushing my toes to the soles of my feet to see was my back broken. Uh, so I'd, I, I would sense it and I could feed them. And I was some buzz to know that, that my back wasn't broken mm -hmm. after what I'd gone through. I was brought to the hospital by helicopter in Warwickshire. I spent 10 days there. I had the, the surgery when I was brought into the hospital. In fact, they thought my my back was broken and they treated me as if I had a, a broken back with possible uh, danger to my spine. But after two days, they realized that Brian Lynch had broken his back four times and he didn't know it. <laughs> wow. And was cured by maybe a few glasses of whiskey to help the pain <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. But I I'd, I'd hadn't gone to a doctor complaining of my back ever. And I, there it was, broken in four places. And that was because of, I, I, I kind of went back through my life to see when those things could have happened. And I, I attributed to maybe snowboarding and horse riding. What age were you when you had this accident in the UK? I was 59. Which is eight years ago. It was eight years now, coming up to eight years now, yes. So the urethra was damaged, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was severed. So severed. Yeah, so there was, no, there was no connection with the outside world. It was broken. And they had to do surgery on me. In, they did it in the casualty. They helicopter me in. They, the casualty people on the side of the field knew because I tried to go to the toilet and I couldn't. And so they got a helicopter, had a, an MRI staff ready to do the MRI on me straight away. And they did the procedure in casualty. And then you, you, you started making the journey from Galway to Dublin. Then I was flown home from the hospital where I sure my insurance company paid for a, an air helicopter, not a helicopter, but an airplane with a doctor, a nurse and a pilot. I, I remember being uh, wheeled into St. James's Hospital. I looked terribly like my brother. So I hid my face so people wouldn't think it was him. <laughs> <laughs> but what was going through your head at all this? What, like, what was keeping you sane, if you are even sane at the time? I, just terribly positive. I knew well I'd make a recovery. I, I knew well the doctors would sort you out. You know, I had great, I had great confidence that they'd do the procedure. But I didn't realise that the procedure they did for me to reconstruct my urethra. It was it was done about five months after the accident. So I had an outside bag for six months. And, you know, it worked in the end. And I used to joke, I was, I stayed in my brother's house in Roundstone for about three weeks. And then I did about six weeks on cruise ships during the summer. For my rehabilitation, it was an ideal place to go and do it. My first steps were in a pool because I was very restricted. Mm. And also having to wear these you know, bags and so on. It wasn't very pleasant, but my used to joke that having spent six weeks on a cruise ship and three weeks on a holiday in Roundstone, that nobody felt sorry for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that's a typical Irish thing, is that, oh, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we hate seeing people putting up photos of themselves on holidays. <laughs> we get very begrudgery. This is when, and I know you're aware of it beforehand, but this is when the real journey began where you started to see the benefits of hyperbaric oxygenation. Yes, well, I came back from the hospital in, in the UK. I was on a Thursday and on Friday morning, I went from in a wheelchair ambulance or a wheelchair taxi from the hospital over to the hyperbaric chamber on the, the Friday. And I did from the hospital or from the rehabilitation centre I was in after a discharge from hospital every day for a month to the hyperbaric chamber to help with my recovery. I did a lot of trauma to my organs inside. I was black and blue or all around my pelvis. 
and you know needed healing. And when you're in the chamber, I used to joke that it would give you a half a gin and tonic effect, <laughs> and it'll give you keep you relaxed. Yeah. So I attribute a lot of my positivity to to that. It's funny because when I did a session there in Oxygeneration a few weeks ago, one of your staff members had come up to me afterwards and said, "So what do you feel? Do you feel anything?" And I said, "I, I don't know what I feel." I said, I'm in a bit of a daze. I don't know what I feel. But I just felt relaxed. And I didn't know it was the fact that I got an, an hour away from the office and the chaos. Yes, but it was yes. just this sense of contentment. Yes. Uh, and I've had issues with stress for the last year or so that we're, we're trying to sort out in terms of nutrition and exercise and, and getting proper sleep and all that. But yeah, straight away I noticed a relaxation and it, it wasn't like a muscular relaxation it was more just at ease at ease yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that's right I, I often joke about that in the when I'm in the chamber myself because I do one session a week that it has that effect to me you get other people then giggling you know <laughs> <laughs> and they realise yes it is so let's explain to people because if they don't know it and I in fairness I didn't know it this time last year what hyperbaric oxygenation is it, it, it sounds more scarier than it actually is. It's yeah, it's a very simple process. You go into what we have is a, a multi-seat chamber. You can have a, a chamber for one person. And when you say chamber, it's, it's nearly like walking onto a cart in a train or something. You know, there's a row of maybe seven seats yes. uh, facing each other. Yeah, like the old Paris Metro. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I actually did research about two days ago to look at the figures again for what size the interior space of the government jet is. The government have Lear Jet 45 and we have more headroom and more width room than the government jet. So anybody's <laughs> worried about being in a confined space. Now, the government jet would be more luxurious with the seating and the carpets and so on. Yeah. Ours would be basic in that way because it's, it's a clinical environment. Yeah. When the door is closed, you push pressure in, which is built up by a compressor and it brings the pressure in the chamber to the equivalent of 10 metres underwater. So they call it two atmospheres of pressure. So if you had a balloon, the volume of the balloon would be halved exactly because it's twice atmospheric pressure. Okay. And that's as far as we go. There are chambers that go to higher pressures and that are used for people who have the bends. But, oh, yeah. but 95% of all treatments nowadays are in a chamber with two atmospheres or less. Okay. And the, the, this chamber, it doesn't move or anything? No. So you, there, There's no wobbly effect. It's, it's a tank. It weighs 10 tonne. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we had to put a, an extra foundation into the, the building to support the chamber. We, we've uh, a foundation for a second chamber on the right of the one that's in there at the moment. Now, again, insurance companies, uh, Irish Life are the first insurance company to approve our centre. Other insurance companies will, will do it in time. Like this is going to be mind blown for people who don't know anything about hyperbaric oxygenation. I've written the book to help. It's a toolkit for doctors. It's for them to, their, their questions are what to have to tell somebody, what law governs, what I have to tell somebody. So every communication between a doctor and a patient is governed by law and there are rules about it. And for instance, you might have a progressive doctor who is reading up on new benefits and treatments and so on and it's not in their clinical practice guidelines and he's afraid if he puts his head above the parapet he'd be shot by his colleagues mm. for telling them but the book explains that the converse is required you shouldn't be calling somebody a quack or pulling them back for telling them something new 
each of those doctors has an obligation to give balanced information about all the treatment options. And that law started off in America where there was a captain of a ship and he had he was uh, pulling two tugs with, uh, with people's property and a very bad storm hit. The tugs were sank and the ship got in home but the people who owned the cargo and the two tugs lost and there was a court case about it. And the defence of the captain was it wasn't normal to have a radio on board. This is 1932 now. There was T.J. Hooper was the name of the case and it became very famous in medical law as well because when do you bring about innovation? So the judge said that even though it was unusual to have a, a radio at the boat, didn't make so much common sense to listen to a forecast and come in if the weather is getting bad and mm. or stay in port until the storm goes by. And then it became the normal practice. But it took the, the judges to tell the captain how to drive the ship. But, and that's unusual. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. A, it's, a, it's, it's always a great reluctance that a court will tell a doctor about an operation. But there were similar cases then, like later on in England or in the in the, in America, whereby it was more patient focused. So the doctor had to discuss the options. Mm-hmm. So doctors might be afraid to tell somebody about an option because it might be risky. But the courts allow and encourage and insist that the person is given the opportunity to take the risk and and heal, whereas doctors are afraid to tell them in case they die. Whereas if they don't do the treatment, they might die anyway. Yeah. So the the courts learned from their discussions with the medical community and the the and the lawyers what to do. So the most recent case, which is hugely, it changed the law in the United Kingdom in a big way, was a lady called Nadine Montgomery, and she had a baby in nineteen ninety nine. And the final judgment of the Supreme Court, or now in, in the UK, was in twenty fifteen. Actually, the judgment was on the day that I had my operation for my pelvis. All right. <laughs> The very same day. Uh, but the court said that an earlier judgment, the judgment, the, the law in England was the doctor knows best. So the doctor was also given the liberty not to tell a patient about something if he thought it was not a good idea to tell him. Like, for instance, in the old times, the pa- person wasn't told he had cancer in case it would bring on the illness quicker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then in this particular case that they set aside was a fellow went into a a mental institution he voluntarily and he was having electric shock treatments and the electric shock threw him off the table off the floor and the, the sockets to hold his both of his hip bones shattered so that he was in a wheelchair for the rest of his life and his his lawyers took a case to say that the doctor said that for for the injured person said that he should have been sedated they should have strapped him onto the bench when they're doing the electric shock treatment and they should have warned him about the dangers and given him the option whether to go ahead or not. And the doctor's defence, which might shock people, which is successful, was if we told him how bad it was, he wouldn't have gone ahead. You see? Now, so that was the, the thinking before. And the court said, no, you must, that was a wrong, that was a wrong decision. So yeah. the Supreme Court in 2015 said, listen, that was wrong. The Supreme Court are not allowed to change the law, but they're allowed to say that previous decisions were wrong. Okay. So that's how you get over the change. Right. So that's what they did. So they, Miss Montgomery lost her case in the high court. It was a case about, she wasn't advised that she could have a cesarean section. She was a diabetic, young diabetic mother, and apparently the shoulders of a, are likely to be bigger than the head in about 10% of the births. And so that would, could be dangerous. And the shoulders were showing to be bigger and the doctor preferred a natural birth, a natural delivery. 
So I didn't tell her. And the reason why she didn't tell her was in case she'd go for the cesarean and the doctor didn't want that to be done. So that's why the doctor won it in the High Court in Scotland, won it in the Court of Appeal in Scotland. And the Supreme Court said, no, that's not decisions. And there's European law to say people must have information about their procedures and the, the person has the right to be treated the way they want to be treated, not how the doctor wants. So that it kind of reversed a whole lot of thinking around yeah. that. And but surely she knew that cesarean sections existed. Oh, they all, yeah, but she wasn't. The, the lady herself who was having the the baby, yeah. she was in the hands of doctors and she had total trust in what they thought was best. And right. she went along with what they said. Yeah. But other doctors said, no, she should have been told at least to do it. And the law in England at the time was the doctor knows best. So you couldn't upset a judgment if the, if there was even 1% of the doctors backed up the person who was, it was a body of competent people who would have supported what happened. It wasn't a vote, yeah. it was just a body of competent people. So that's how it moved on and that culture has remained and that's why doctors haven't really been challenged on what to tell people because Irish doctors, for instance, there's 11,000 anaesthetists between Ireland and England, but only 4% of them are from Ireland. So that English law dominated how things were done. These chambers, they're in hospitals in Ireland. There's one chamber in the University Hospital in Galway, and that's the national chamber. It's called the National Hyperbaric Medicine Unit. So it's for the whole country. I mean, most... One chamber. One chamber, yes. And there are a number of private chambers. So for instance, the one I went to was a private chamber in Dublin. It's one street up on the north side of the Liffey, very close to O'Connell Bridge. And the six Dublin hospitals use that, and HSE pays for it, for people who've got radiation damage following radiation treatment and some other maxillofacial injuries. But it is used by the HSE in Dublin. So you had your injury, you had your accident, you're injured, you had your surgery, you had your recovery, you're back in Galway, and you say, I'm going to set this up as a business. Yes. Yeah, I, I felt there was a definite market for it. I felt there was, even in Dublin, there's a much bigger market than there was being used. And I decided that I'd I'd have a go and, and set it up. And there was a building down in Merchants Road, which was vacant, which I had bought as a pension fund for myself years ago and was vacant. So I said I'd put it in there. And I got an English company to install it. I got... 10 tons, I'd say. You're talking a big investment here. So it was, it was a big, it was a big project. And I think that when I, when I had the contract signed to buy it, the, the, the manufacturer wanted to take it back off me if he could, because he had a, a market for it in, in the army in Vietnam. The soldiers wanted it and I wanted it. So it'd be very nice to make sure that he, he didn't <laughs> change his mind about selling it to me, you know. So you brought this to go, having had the benefits of it yourself and I suppose realizing that there's so many people out there who could benefit from the same sort of treatment, which is literally going going into a chamber. It's been pressurized. You put a mask on, like a like an oxygen mask. Yeah, a, a mask like a pilot would wear on an airplane, or, yeah. you know, that kind of, or you see it on a, on a hospital bed with somebody wearing a mask. And you just read a book or go on your emails or yes. look at the telly and sit and chill for an hour. Not, yeah, it's an hour and a half, roughly, or, or an hour and 20 minutes, you're in the chamber. Yeah, it is. It is relaxing. And when the, the masks come off, people are very good about telling other people about how they get on. Mm. And there's a hospital which I like to model ourselves on in in Toronto. It was a Dr. Shouldice Hospital. It became a classic Harvard study in business. And you get your customer to help your business grow as much as you can. 
you help you get your customer to help in that hospital. He was doing hernia operations. Soldiers were returning to Canada in, or to Toronto after the war, and they needed hernias. Their guts were in bits because of the fear of the battlefield, the lack of good food, and it, it had effect on, on their stomachs and so on. So he would set up a situation whereby he would have three people at the tea table who had their operation that day. And he'd have three other people who were about to have their operation the next day. And the chat would be like this. Gary, I had my operation today. It took about 40 minutes. The procedure was was very simple. I had a a local anaesthetic. So I could hear the doctor was talking about they had a kind of a sheet hiding what was going on. And I didn't feel anything. And once the operation was over, and this is the important part, the doctor would get me to get off the operation table and he'd give me a hand in case I'd fall. The nurse would help as well. And then they walked me down the corridor and another corridor and then I get into a wheelchair and they brought me to my room and then I had a rest and here I am now. Now, in America, North America, that same patient would be transferred from the operating table to a wheelie bed and brought on the wheelie bed down to his ward and stay in bed for three days and then the whole hospital stay was eight days. But because of that first conversation about them getting off the operating table straight away they're all psyched up to do it and and did it so the hospital stay was three days and they were to get through more people without having the long waiting list it was a it was still battlefield medicine at the time Mm -hmm. but very clever and that that kept going and it became a very busy hospital because you could have a very comfortable hospital and only spend three days in it and have your surgery so it was and then it was an example of how the patients were helping each other yeah. So the next day we'd have a different conversation, different table, and I said, now you're coming for a walk with me. I walked a mile this morning, I had my operation yesterday. And mm-hmm. I had a walk a mile in the afternoon and then you did your gym exercise and so on. So here was these patients saying that this is normal. So there's people who have gone there who have maybe had radiation therapy, they've had fibromyalgia. If I give an example with, with heart disease. Heart disease, it, it, it's been approved by the American Heart Foundation since 1992. And what you can do is, just to say the science that proves it works, yeah. as, as a side to somebody getting better, is that you, you take blood samples and you analyze the blood and you can, you can measure infection, you can measure, in, you can measure inflammation, mm. you can measure the stem cell production, you can measure angiogenesis. So a scientist will look at it on, with a microscope and the microscopes now that are called nanoscopes, so you've got one billionth, to think of it, one billionth of one meter visual of an individual cell. And if you look at the individual cell, it it's the, has the same complication as looking up into the universe. Into, into the universe. Like the thousands, thousands yeah. of stars and all of those things are doing something. So we don't understand exactly what's going on there in the universe or in the cell. Yeah. But there are aspects of the cell they identify and know how it behaves and so on as a, as a function of oxygen, as a function of hyperoxygenation. So they're ready to show what happens. So, for instance, there's an increase in stem cell production and they have taken people's blood samples in the chamber and then put them out. And and they can see that, for instance, when in the middle of the session, in the last 18 months or so, or maybe two years, people are taking off their masks in the middle of the session and because the body goes into a fright mode, and it thinks it's going to have no more oxygen mm. and it starts producing stem cells. So they're taking blood samples of people in the chamber and they discovered this is what was happening. 
So we take the mask off in the middle of the session for five minutes and put yeah, it back on yeah, again. Yeah. yeah, because there is oxygen. It's not yeah, like you're starved yeah. of oxygen yeah, and you yeah. need to wear a mask in the chamber. Yeah. Uh, it's like being in a normal room. And this fellow with the nanoscope, it was a video nanoscope. It was at one billionth of one meter. I loved the way he, he described it. He, he, he said, you could see those stem cells just spewing out. <laughs> <laughs> but how does that help then for heart disease? Well, for heart disease is that the foundation of heart disease is inflammation. And that's caused by a lack of oxygen. The system isn't functioning properly and the cells become dysfunctional in a sense. So what they can do studies is they can, they can measure somebody with heart disease and, and with their blood sample say, let's give him a score one of 100. Let's say he's 65. How many sessions does that person need to get him back to naught? Mm. So they're playing around with, is it better to give somebody 40 sessions or 80 sessions or 40 and one a week or two a week? And so... You can't do a random control trial now for people with heart disease because you can't deprive by law somebody from the from the, the known benefits. And that, that stems from, in fact, the Second World War was called the Nuremberg Code. So to do a human trial on somebody, the trial has to be necessary. You can't randomise people unnecessarily just to prove a point. Mm. If you can prove the point some other way, you don't, you can't do it. So you can prove that people improve because their inf inflammation improves. So if you have people pretending they're in a chamber for, we say, 40 sessions over two months and they're not getting any treatment just to prove that they're not getting well. Yeah. Or if, for instance, you couldn't do it in the COVID. You couldn't allow people to die by not giving the, the treatment and let other people use it. That, they were randomised control trials, were unlawful, even straight away with the, with the COVID situation. And there was this debate going on internationally when I was involved in it, because I'm a lawyer who's this inside track, and I wrote to a number of people in America and said, you can't have a random control trial. So then they started saying, you better get your own legal advice if you're doing any trials. And they stopped. The Americans stopped doing the random control trial. Let's talk about COVID because I mentioned that you have people with heart disease and radiation therapy and so on, availing of it. And let's also put it in there as well. You have athletes who are going for hyperbaric oxygenation whether it's rugby, Gaelic football, hurling, soccer, whatever, and they're coming from around the country to avail of the service. And disclaimer-wise as well, like you have said, you have set up a business. It's a profit-making business, uh, Oxygeneration. But I wish it was, nearly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's that 10-ton yeah. chamber. Yeah, yeah, off, we have yeah. to pay for it, yes, yeah. yes, yes. But long COVID, it's, I suppose it's only now really since... It arrived into Ireland that we know of two and a half years ago that we're now seeing the effects of what COVID has had on both society and, and people personally. And I know people myself personally who are suffering from long COVID, but you have a lot of people coming into your door, even from a young age, like teenagers Absolutely. coming in, yes, looking for this treatment to help them with the symptoms of suffering from long COVID. Yeah, look, it's been, for, for long COVID, it's been remarkable. And we're back again to hypoxic tissue injury at a cellular level. So the coronavirus attack on tissue, it was first thought to be just attacking the lungs, the tissue of the lungs. But the biggest demand of oxygen in the system is that the, apparently the brain weighs 8% of the body weight and takes 20% of the oxygen. So if you have a, a disease that's calling hypoxic tissue at a cellular level, the brain gets hit. And a lot of the dysfunctions were caused by, by brain damage, memory loss, fatigue, loss of balance, hearing, a taste, 
smell, you know, with a, a woman who her voice was slurred because of the, like a stroke-like injury, yeah. muscular problem. So all of those things, for instance, in, in China at the very beginning, they did lung tests of people and they did blood tests and they showed how they, they had a, was a lack of oxygen in the whole blood system and then how that was improving and then eventually they'd have a cure. So the first person was treated in China on the 15th of February with hyperoxygenation. I remember it was a 69-year-old man and it was the husband of the doctor in the Wuhan hospital that was in charge of the chamber. Mm -hmm. And she got a text message from a scientist, doctor, who knew her and he suggested at the very beginning when, when he heard her husband wasn't well to give him hyperoxygenation. But he's in hospital for 23 days and it was almost going to die and they gave it to him and it, they, he recovered remarkably. They could see him inside the chamber. He was in the in the multi-seat chamber with, for 20 people on his own. Nobody's in the chamber with him and they could they see in the windows how he's recovering. Wow. So he only needed, they had published a report about him when seven sessions were completed and he did one more session before he was discharged home. Why is there such a difference of healthcare treatments in countries all over the world? Why why do you think that all the great medical practitioners out there, healthcare providers and so on, they haven't just come to one conclusion of this is the way to go for treating this and this and this, that countries are doing it, you might all be, doing it differently. You might be talking about chapter four in the book where I start off and I say that if science was the basis of making this decisions for medical treatments, you'd expect that the treatments in Japan would be the same as the United States, but they're not. Then I give an example of neurological disorders or for, it's not approved by the FDA in the United States for brain injuries, whereas in Japan they won't carry out random control trials because of the expected benefits from using hyperoxygenation. So it'd be un unethical. They use it in Japan, for instance, for people having chemotherapy and radiation because those two processes damage tissue. Mm. And before it, it manifests itself into worse situations, everybody gets hyperoxygenation in those countries for those injuries. If there was a, a road accident and somebody had brain injury, they'd be put straight into the hyperoxygen chamber. If somebody had a spinal injury, they'd be put straight into a chamber. So I examined that. I was curious myself about your question, of why are they different? Why is Japan different to, to America? And the first thing I noticed is one of the leading ways forward for doctors to have confidence in the use of techniques for treating people is the Cochrane reviews. And that would, they would use those for, we say, testing drugs. And the process of testing drugs would be initially you test on animals or test on pieces of skin in a, on a, in a lab and so on. Then you start using humans. But with hyperoxygenation, they already know the benefits. They don't, it's not like a, a drug that might kill somebody. They know the benefits. So the Cochrane reviews expect to have randomized control trials. So in Japan, there wouldn't be the, where they, they honor the Nuremberg Code and that's which, which is put, put into, into, into their own domestic laws in different countries. We have our laws here well established about, about giving people notification about what the treatments are and so on. So, the Cochrane reviews won't recommend something unless there's random control trials. So they do what they do a research of all different cases that were researched, review it as an editorial board on hyperoxygenation. And they say for a non-healing bone injury is an example I give in the book. And they said there was no 
trials that met our criteria in the last 10 years. So we can't say whether hyperoxygenation is good for a non-healing bone injury or not because there was no random control trials. And then a doctor who's busy will read this and so it doesn't say it should be used for that. So you won't tell the patient. However, if you come down to oxygenation, Irish life will pay for it in that situation. Yeah. So how come it's not in the Cochrane Reviews and the Cochrane Reviews don't say insurance companies are paying for it all over the world? So they're, they have this sort of their own barriers, their own limitations and the need to adjust and the the history of of English law, medical law is such that Mrs. Montgomery wasn't told about it, it wasn't mainstream. So you, you, you couldn't have a situation where the women needing a cesarean section would, wouldn't be given it to see what would happen, would happen and give it to other women because we consider it unethical. Yeah, yeah. So that's the reason why in, in countries that rely faithfully on randomised control trials and won't give the treatment unless there are random control trials, they won't recommend it because it's not a recommended treatment. The clinical guidelines uses the information from those trials, the, the Cochrane reviews. So you're at a kind of a stalemate situation. You can't move forward. And then I, my curiosity made me look at the law and said, well, no, this is the law now has, a, have, has rules about this. So the judge has to put himself into the shoes of a patient. So what would a reasonable person in the patient position want to be told and what would their values be? So if a patient is told that one person had a non-healing wound successfully healed or it was used in Japan even or it's used in China or it's used in Croatia or it's free in Germany even though there's no control trials that'd be enough for a reasonable person in the patient position to go have a go for it. Mm -hmm. So if you've got Parkinson's disease and there's no random control trials for it and you have it, and you hear a story, one story, which is called N equals one, you might be entitled to try it. So the law says you must tell that person and let that person make up their mind about it. Mm -hmm. And that's completely new thinking for the people who are the editors of the Cochrane Reviews to keep up with the law. Yeah. And they're... Because this isn't a new medicine, like it's around 50 years or so. Oh, it? it's a few hundred years old, really. All know, right, okay. <laughs> But not, you know, you know, they, the, the man, Mr. Braille, who, who designed the writing for a blind person, if he had used the chamber for two or three days, it wouldn't be called Mr. Braille. Somebody else would have had to invent it because he would not have been blind. It would have saved his eyesight. It's that powerful. Yeah, yeah. He'd, he'd had, he had an infection in an eye and it's used for serious infections. And he used it in the Second World War when there was no antibiotics. Antibiotics was the demise of the huge success of hyperactive chambers because there was no need for them but now they're realising the antibiotics aren't as good as they used to be. True. So it was a Second World War tool for infection and if Mr. Braille had been had used a chamber it wasn't widely used or known about but they do know now if he'd used it it would have meant he would have kept his eyesight and and it's approved by the FDA for sudden blindness now so he'd been paid for by an insurance company. If Mr. Braille was alive today his insurance company would pay for it. If I was in the States, we Medicare would pay for it. Yeah, it's amazing that this is out there, and I suppose it's getting getting it out there even more well, for I, people I, to be message, aware of it. Yeah, the message is to get out there, and, and the message is to help doctors understand that to call somebody a quack for using a different treatment is possibly to be unlawfully dissuading the other doctor from telling somebody balanced information. So it's the pot called the kettle black. Mm. To call somebody a quack is probably close to breaking the law. How do you manage being a practicing solicitor and having this business, which is completely different from the world of law? How, how do you balance all that in your life? 
an interesting thing it has occurred to me as a solicitor I did I, I did mostly myself did litigation yeah. and you're fighting somebody's corner and this is what you're doing down the acceleration you're, you're fighting their corner you're helping them get out and there's great great satisfaction in that great personal pleasure doing it and then it's a business so it has to be it has to be a business otherwise it won't work mm. there's a business there's a business there's a model in the United Kingdom where there's about 90 chambers and they're run by charities but you know, for for their population, I think that my model is a simple chamber. It it makes it more accessible. It costs money to run them, and I think the business model will be better. What I'm doing, even though I encourage other people, there's a place, for instance, in Bandon, run by a charity. There's a, a man down there who had multiple cirrhosis, and he knew that it was a benefit to him. He went to England for lots of treatment. So it's like me having your own personal chamber in Galway. He had his own personal chamber down in Bandon, and he. They collected money with charities and they bought, they bought a building under it with charity money. The people who run the chamber are are, are more mainly retired people and, and they don't uh, charge. So they, it's very it's very cheap to have sessions down there in the chamber because they only pay for the cost of running it. So without the overhead of a building or a staff, they charge about 40 euros a session. If you're young and healthy, or maybe not even young, if you're healthy, is it of any benefit or is it really for people who have health issues? If you're healthy, people want to run more and get better, even better. We've got people who are running marathons who went to us to help them. When the Japanese rugby team went to the United Kingdom in, 19, in 2015, the World Cup rugby, they found a town with a chamber that would allow them to use it. And then they found a football field that they could do their training camp on. And then they found a hotel to stay in in that order and they use it every day because I was speaking to some of the people who worked there and they were telling about the, the, the Japanese team coming all the time so in, in Japan it's normal in the UK for sports clubs it's normal the GA pay for used to pay for the county teams hurling and football teams in the counties around and now they're paying for every footballer and hurler at any age to come into us who has an injury and my favourite subject with them always is concussion and head injury because they can do look at you can have a hamstring injury and lump, limp around the place but if you have a brain injury mm. you need to get a really good treatment and we did have a rugby player who had a brain injury who heard it from a friend of a friend and came into us was told you have no prospect of recovery he couldn't go to school and the consultant urologist told the family there's nothing more I can do in fact there's no point in making an appointment to see me anymore there's nothing I can do and then by word of mouth he heard about us into the chamber and having been written off not to his education, he's in university now. He made a recovery from the brain injury and within a few days he was bringing his study books in. If you read a sheet of paper, he couldn't recall what he had read. He could speak to you, you know, do a whole lot of things. So there was a lot of tears of joy yeah. in that house. And with another girl, uh, similar situation with COVID. She had no balance. She wasn't able to walk without somebody either side of her to, to be there because she'd fall over. She needs to be helped from the couch, which was lying on for seven months, to go to the kitchen table, to the toilet, to the bed. And then she came to us to be helped from the car, parked right outside the door, to be helped in. And within a few weeks, she was kicking football and walking in from the car park and, you know, a huge number of other things. And in fact, we had a doctor who was a, a customer at the time. The person's mother said, that doctor has been very nice to that person, you know. And so, so I said to him, you'll be very good. He said, I actually thought that person had multiple cirrhosis, didn't know it was COVID, had all the similar features. Yeah, yeah. He was looking at her and uh, no, I said, that was COVID. And he could see her getting better. 
which was kind of interesting too, because it's very difficult to get better from multiple cirrhosis, even though you've had a lot of improvements, you know. But she, her recovery was remarkable. Absolutely fascinating. If people want to get further information, do you want to give them your website? Yeah, it's oxygeneration.com. And we encourage people to, to phone in. We have a recording service there that they can leave a message, even if they're at home at night time at 10 o'clock or early in the morning. Just ring up the number and leave the message and we'll get back to them. The number is 91 Three nine double four double four, or email info at oxygenation dot com. And I have to say, the staff are lovely. Thank you very much. They are, <laughs> they're 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 fantastic, really, and yeah. they enjoy it. They love it. Absolutely love the job there. Yeah, I love when you walk into a place and you have this immediate energy of hospitality and that you're welcome. You know, sometimes you can walk into a place and you can nearly be doing burpees and somersaults before they'll actually recognise that you're in there. Whereas there's other places where you just, you get this warm welcome the minute you walk in and you have that. So long may it rain. Finally, Brian, as we wrap up, I always uh, like to ask people to give our listeners their nugget of wisdom for people in business or people looking to get into business. And for yourself, who's been in business for so long and grew up at the dinner table where business was discussed and so on, what would you tell people? Have confidence in yourself and in others and have a vision and just do it. And if you're not enjoying yourself, you're wasting your time. I always say I've never been bored for a minute of my life. And just to add on to that, do you think by having a cause, like you said, you feel you're always fighting people. Fighting the corner for somebody, yes. Yeah. Do you yes. feel like having a cause is important? Oh, I, I do. I, and have a, a direction, a name to go for. Know where you're going with it. Brian Lynch, thank you for joining us on Gary Talks. Thanks very much, Gary. Enjoy that. Nice talking to you. There you go. I hope you found that discussion with Brian Lynch interesting. And that was one of the reasons why I really wanted to sit down and have a discussion with Brian about hyperbaric oxygenation because it's something I hadn't heard too much about before. But I think it's very interesting what Brian had to say about it. So hopefully you found the content of what he does interesting and insightful, but also what drove him to do what he does. And I think in business, it's so important that our cause is clear to us and our cause aligns with our core values. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gary Talks. Please do spread the word about the podcast and please do follow us on social media as well, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and you can see some videos from the podcasts on those channels. Finally, don't forget to join me again on Friday for another short bonus episode of Business Bites. Take care.